Hello everybody, um, I'm Kiora. In today's webinar, we will talk about a project um, that provides guidance for practitioners to select, prioritize and implement interventions to prevent um, road fatalities and serious injuries in regional and remote areas. We have more than 700 people registered for today's session. Welcome to you all and thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a Senior Communications Officer at Austroads and I will be moderating today's session together with Dr. Christopher Stokes. Chris is one of our presenters today and he will also moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. I would like to start by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitani and Maori is the Aboriginal people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Australian um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Ostrots is based in Sydney and so today I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to elders past, present and emerging and their deep and ongoing connection to the land. A little bit about Austroads, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Road Safety and Design Programme, which is managed by Michael Newstick. A little bit of housekeeping. Our presenters will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The slides and the report can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon on your sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, um, please include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best as we can. Also let us know if you have um, any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So leaving the session and rejoining uh, using your registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will let you know when uh, the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, you can also find Ostrots in your podcast app. So it gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce our presenters for today. Our first speaker is Dr. Tana Ten. He will introduce the project team and take us through the project background. Tana is the research and evaluation lead at Safe System Solutions and has over 15 years um, of experience as a researcher, project manager, consultant and trainer. Following Tana, uh, Dr. Lisa Wonderseeds and uh, Dr. Christopher Stokes will share the highlights from the literature review. Um, Lisa is a senior research fellow at the Center for Automotive Safety Research at the University of Adelaide, um, with a PhD in psychology and 25 years of experience in road safety. Lisa has extensive experience in leading human factors research aimed at influencing um, road user behavior. Christopher has been working with the Center for Automotive Safety Research since 2014. He has a PhD in civil engineering and his research is heavily involved um, with aligning road infrastructure and transport management to safe system thinking. After Lisa and Chris, uh, Tana will talk about the fact sheets, prioritization and intervention evaluation frameworks. And at the end of the presentation, we will have time for your questions. Um, welcome to all our presenters and over to you, Tana. Thank you very much, uh, Katerina, um, for the introduction to the project. I'd like to take this opportunity to uh, introduce the project team. So from the Office of Road Safety, we have Mark Ellis and Alison Wisinski. From CASA, we have uh, Dr. Lisa Wonsitz and Dr. Chris Stokes, as well as Craig Cloden. Um, and from Safety Solutions, we've got uh, Ken Beer, Paul Zakovich, and myself. I'd also like to acknowledge the uh, the work that uh, has been conducted by the working group. Um, so from Northern Territory, we have Matt Ollenby and Sam Hathibal-Samis. From Queensland, we've got Sean English and Paul Gottke. Um, from Safety Together, it's David Pierce and Michael Yeager. Um, from the Mildura City Council, we have Chris Davis, uh, and from WA, we have Terry Ann Tett and Sarah Newitt. 
I'd also like to uh, thank the um, these following organisations who had also contributed to the project uh, through workshops uh, from stakeholder workshops. I won't read out every single uh, organisation because I'll take quite a while, but there it is on the screen. And again, thank you very much to all those who have helped uh, with this project along. I'd like to now provide a bit of a, a background to the project. Um, so this project, as Secretary mentioned, uh, is focusing on regional rural safety. And the reason why it's it has come about is that about a third of Australian, um, Australians live in regional or remote areas. However, they, uh, they account for about two thirds of the fatal crashes. Regional fatality rates are about 12.2 per 100,000. Um, and this is significantly higher than that in Australian major cities, which have about 4.5 to 5.5 per 100,000. And if we look at uh, very remote areas, the fatality rates can go up to about just under 35 per 100,000. And the graph on the left-hand side will show you where Australia stands in amongst the OECD member countries. And um, the second graph below that uh, shows the fatality rates per 100,000 uh, in various regions or areas in Australia, ready from major cities to very remote areas. So this project has uh, come partly come from the National Road Safety Strategy 2021 to 2030 goals, which is halving the uh, per capita fatalities by 2030 and reducing serious injuries by 30% by 2030. Uh, and this is to be achieved through three key themes, uh, which are the safer roads, safer vehicles, and safer road users. So this uh, project's got a number of aims, um, as listed here. Firstly, it's provide evidence-based interventions uh, for that are applicable to regional and rural road areas. Um, secondly, or thirdly, is to uh, develop a prioritising framework to assist those with prioritising the various interventions that can be applied uh, to a particular issue that they've identified. And lastly, uh, provide an evaluation framework to assist those with evaluating the effectiveness of the treatments that have been installed. Three project outputs uh, are firstly a research report, which is, in, which is on the project website. Um, and secondly, a practice report, which will be published in the next month. This is going to be based on the research report. However, it is a much more condensed version and will contain three of the four key elements that form the research report, which we'll walk you through very shortly. Um, and they are the fact sheets, the prioritization framework and evaluation framework. And lastly, the fact sheets will also be extracted from the research report and placed onto the project webpage. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, pass this presentation on to Dr. Lisa Wonsit and Dr. Christopher Stokes uh, to walk you through the first of the four, four parts of the report. Thank you, Dr. Tanatan. Um, now, Dr. Lisa Wondersitz and myself would like to give some highlights from the literature review that we performed as part of this project. I'd like to give a little bit of uh, background on this literature review first. So the literature review that we performed was an update to the literature review that was provided in the Austroids report APR603. This was published back in 2019. And that particular literature review focused on literature up until before 2017. Um, as such, we've focused mainly on literature published uh, from 2017 onwards, though we have also included other literature from just before this, if it was rather pertinent to what we were trying to discuss. We've also focused on countermeasures that have a demonstrated benefit on road safety. Um, and in this webinar, I would like to give a brief overview of the findings from the literature review. So we won't be going into any particular detail as we just don't have the time for that. Before we start, um, firstly, though, I should say we'll start with safe roads. 
Uh, so we're looking at infrastructure solutions here. And before we start talking about infrastructure, uh, I'd like to note that infrastructure countermeasures are commonly considered in a hierarchical manner. And so that means that we're placing priority of certain countermeasures above others. We have not done that in our literature review. So both in the presentation that myself and Dr. Wondersitz will give today and also in the report, they're not in a hierarchical manner. So there is, they're not in a list of priority or in an order of priority, I should say. Now we can get on with the uh, literature review itself. But before I talk about the infrastructure, I'd like to talk about prioritising countermeasures. And so we generally do this to assist with uh, gaining the maximum benefits from our interventions for a particular project. Often we use crash modification factors for this, um, also called crash reduction factors, uh, which is slightly different, but of the same general idea. Uh, and these are used to quantify the effect that infrastructure will have on reducing crashes or a subset of crashes, such as, say, injury crashes. Crash modification factors can be found uh, in a, from a range of sources, including Osroads publications. Uh, and while they are fairly easy to source, understanding the context from where they've come from can be a little more difficult to find out. And this is very important uh, when we're looking at the applicability of those crash modification factors to what we're trying to apply them to. So that's something we need to be careful of when we're looking at crash modification factors. Um, also, another thing to consider when we're looking at infrastructure solutions is that it's important to consider the other safe system pillars. So that being uh, safe people, safe uh, vehicles and safe speeds. Um, as we can find some good solutions from these pillars too. The problem then comes if we want to uh, compare the benefits from one pillar to another. As we can often quantify the benefits from infrastructure, it's harder to do that with the other pillars, but it is nonetheless important to look at them as well. So now we can get on with the, um, the infrastructure itself. And I'd like to start off by talking about mid-block countermeasures. So these are uh, countermeasures that are applied between intersections and they're to affect crashes that aren't uh, due to intersection uh, type manoeuvres. The benefits gained from these types of countermeasures is not just through their effectiveness, but it's also through how widely spread we can apply these countermeasures. So can we gain a good amount of coverage over the length of the road or over the network? And this is one of the reasons why we've seen favour being going towards continuous lengths of barriers instead of spot treatments that just aim to protect a particular hazard on the roadside. The reason for this is that continuous lengths of barriers will also protect from rollovers even when there isn't a hazard to be hit on the roadside. We've also seen wide centre lines and audio tactile line marking becoming popular. And this is being marked with a increase uh, in the amount of uh, study that has been done on these particular countermeasures. Perceptual countermeasures are also becoming more popular and these may have some effect, though there is limited evidence as to their effectiveness. Next, I'd like to talk about intersection countermeasures. These are applied at intersections and therefore specifically targeting intersection specific crashes, such as say a right turn out of a side road or a adjacent approach crash. 
There are a few novel countermeasures that we found uh, for improving road safety uh, to be applied at intersections, though we did find some. Uh, the first one I'd like to talk about is compact rural roundabouts. And so these are gaining favour and for the reason that they're good at reducing cost. Um, so the reason for this is that they have a reduced footprint from conventional rural roundabouts, meaning that there will need to be less and even sometimes no land acquisition at the intersection or nearby the intersection where they're being placed. We've also seen um, vehicle activated systems at intersections becoming more popular. Uh, two that come to mind for me are the Rural Junction Active Warning System in South Australia or the Side Road Activated Speeds in Victoria. And these are being trialled to some good success. I would also like to mention that signalised roundabouts and raised platforms, although they haven't been tested in regional and remote areas at this stage, they have been used more in urban areas and there may be some reason that they would have success in rural and remote environments, although, as I said, this does remain untested. Now I'd like to talk about motorcycle-specific countermeasures. And so there are a few motorcycle-specific countermeasures that we found in the literature reviewed. Although it is worth saying that most road safety infrastructure that's aimed towards the more general uh, road user population should provide some benefit to motorcyclists as well. One of the motorcyclist-specific countermeasures that we have found uh, is uh, underrun protection on barriers. These are also known as rub rails, and these can reduce injury severity to motorcyclists when they uh, have a crash, when they come off their motorcycle and slide into the barrier. Uh, the theory there being that instead of sliding into the post of the barrier, uh, they'll have a less severe or hopefully less severe impact with the rub rail itself. Recently, there's been undertaken a study um, from Deakin University in which they looked at the effect of pavement type on the durability of protective clothing. Um, to the best of my knowledge, the report from this study has yet to be released, though we have obtained some preliminary findings from this study and they've been published in the report. Perceptual interventions are also becoming more popular for motorcyclists and have been tested. Um, earlier this year, Ostroads report APR688 was released uh, in which a perceptive countermeasure that was applied at curves uh, on particular motorcycle routes was trialled uh, and the findings from this uh, study showed that there are some benefits to motorcyclists. Lastly, in terms of safe roads, I'd like to talk about heavy vehicle countermeasures. Like with motorcyclists, there are few specific countermeasures aimed at heavy vehicles. Though countermeasures targeted towards uh, uh, the more broader road user community may be of some benefit, both to heavy vehicle um, operators and also to those involved in a crash with a heavy vehicle. One worth mentioning, or one of the countermeasures worth mentioning, and one of the very few that we have targeted specifically for heavy vehicles are road safety barriers that are rated to contain heavy vehicles, although there has been no new um, uh, literature published on this that shows any difference in their effect, or that we could find, I should say. Um, one that has come more recently to light uh, has been that of signage targeted towards heavy vehicles, so specifically towards heavy vehicles, and the need to utilise this more. 
and also looking at activated signage uh, aimed at heavy vehicle operators. Um, though this is being used at the moment, it is currently limited to major freeways and tollways. Um, so that concludes uh, my section on safe roads. I'd now like to hand over to Dr. Lisa Wondersitz, who will be talking about safe people. Thank you very much. I'd now like to um, draw on the safe of people literature to look at some um, countermeasures for regional areas. Now, high visibility um, drink and drug driving enforcement combined with public education is important for increasing drivers' perception of the likelihood of detection. So that's general deterrence. Also acknowledging that there are additional challenges in regional areas, such as extensive road networks, limited resources, and local knowledge of enforcement locations. For preventing drink and drug driving recidivism, a multifaceted approach is likely to give offenders the best possible opportunity to change their behaviour using a combination of legal administrative sanctions, so that's things like fines, demerit points, licence disqualifications, um, as well as therapeutic behaviour change programs that aim to separate drinking or drug use from driving. Um, an example is the Victorian Behaviour Change Program. And also in combination with alcohol interlocks, which we know are um, pretty effective, in fact, most effective, one of the most effective um, drink driving measures um, while they're installed in the vehicle. And the most effective interlock programs include treatment as well. And this multimodal approach is needed to target the risk factors for the behaviour as well as facilitating referral to support for any other issues such as substance use dependence or depression. And these are significant issues in regional areas. Uh, we also need to be embedding uh, drink and drug driving prevention into wider regional community health initiatives and that could provide some road safety benefits. Now all aspects of this are challenging in regional and especially remote areas with respect to accessing programs and also the servicing availability for interlocks. A lack of transport options in regional remote areas is also a barrier to the separation of drinking or drug use and driving. Now looking at uh, driver fatigue, um, road treatments that are proven to be to prevent fatigue crashes or reduce injury severity are audio tactile line marking, centre inside uh, barriers, sealed shoulders, wide centre lines with audio tactile line marking and to a lesser extent clear zones. And these are all designed to uh, prevent vehicles essentially from running off the road. Uh, driver fatigue monitoring systems can be useful for alerting a driver and uh, fleet managers to their declining performance, um, but the technology is still reliant on the driver responding to these warnings and systems are not yet totally um, reliable. A fatigue management policy um, and an active safety culture in workplaces are also good measures for addressing professional driver-related fatigue, um, specifically in heavy vehicle industry. Um, rest areas and Regional areas um, are useful for providing a safe area for drivers and heavy vehicle operators to take a break when they're feeling fatigued. Um, their effectiveness has not yet been evaluated, but this is difficult to do in a scientific and meaningful way. And now turning to the literature on unlicensed driving. Um, the lack of a driver's license can negatively impact on people's access to employment, education, health and community support, leading to unlicensed driving. So one of the best measures for regional areas is programs to facilitate learner drivers to obtain a driver's license. So that's helping them um, find the correct documents, um, providing supervised driving hours and access to vehicles. They are available for people from a disadvantaged background and Aboriginal people in remote areas in some jurisdictions. An example is a driver licensing access program in New South Wales. Further access to training and licensing services are needed. I would also like to point out that the New South Wales Parliament has recently published um, a Stay Safe inquiry um, to, to show different ways that um, can be support rural learner drivers. In terms of enforcement, um, 
automatic number plate recognition technology can detect unlicensed driving in vehicles registered to the unlicensed driver. Um, using this technology in a mobile context, so that's using the automated mobile camera detection system that it typically they use for detecting mobile phone use. Um, that could facilitate greater detection in regional areas. Electronic driver licences with biomarker authentication can provide a promising means to prevent unlicensed driving, although their feasibility in regional and remote areas hasn't been explored. And turning to um, restraint use, um, the enforcement of seatbelt use in re regional areas can be challenging, um, but the new automated camera detection systems, um, the ones we're talking about um, for phones there, have the potential to detect restraint non-use in front seat passengers. Um, since this report was written, um, Queensland has been the first state to use this technology and they did have findings of lower than expected seatbelt use. There are also some programs aimed at improving Aboriginal child restraint use in remote areas. An example is a car seat for kids in the Northern Territory um, where they fitted over 2,000 child restraints in 30 communities and also um, using over 80 Aboriginal trained fitters. Research has found programs to improve the correct installation of child restraints are more successful when the training is provided to the parents and caregivers as well. Seatbelt interlocks are designed to prevent the vehicle from starting unless the seatbelt is fastened. Um, they have potential to increase restraint use Flexibility and use in Australia is untested. Um, there has been more research over the last few years investigating Aboriginal road safety to understand the underlying causes of risky driving behaviour and potential solutions. Importantly, this has involved consultation with Aboriginal communities. Programs to increase access to licensing services and fitting child restraints are provided in some remote Aboriginal communities. The most effective programs for Aboriginal people are collaborative, culturally appropriate, evidence-based, sustainable, and involve communities in program development and delivery. An example is On the Right Track Remote in South Australia, where licensing has increased from 17% to 50% for this program. And they're now undertaking an exciting new aspect of the program, where they're assisting with heavy vehicle licensing. So while existing licensing programs are continuing and some expanding, um, greater evaluation and monitoring is needed. In addition to licensing programs, alternative transport options in regional and remote communities are needed to increase the access to employment and services and assist in preventing drink and drug driving, unlicensed driving and overcrowded vehicles. Um, a good example is the remote uh, bus program in the Northern Territory. New South Wales has also trialled some demand responsive transport services in regional areas around Dubbo. And now moving on to the um, safer vehicle literature and countermeasures um, from that aspect of the literature. Um, research indicates that vehicle technologies clearly have much potential in reducing the incidence and severity of crashes common in regional areas, which are typically single vehicle and head-on crash types. So examples of these technologies are lane keeping technology, electronic stability control, autonomous emergency braking, intelligent speed adaption. And there's been increasing um, supporting evidence over the years for this technology. However, adequate infrastructure and road quality is required to realise the full benefits from these ADAS technologies. We need good quality road lines and they need to be good um, contrast with the, the road. Um, we need clear road signs and cellular availability as well. So while highly trafficked rural highways in Australia appear to be pretty support, supportive, much work is still needed to improve the quality of the infrastructure and roads in many regional areas. The promotion of safe vehicle choices, including the safest vehicle that is fit for purpose, is important in regional and remote areas to reduce the average age of the vehicle fleet. Newer vehicles have more safety technology. We also need commercial use, um, which are very popular in regional areas, to provide um, occupant protection and safety technologies at the same level as other light passenger vehicles. 
um, corporate fleet purchasing policies as well could lead to a faster uptake of, of newer vehicles when the five-star um, vehicle policies, sorry, five-car and cap vehicle policies. Um, it's also worth mentioning that there's other incentives too, such as the uh, Unsafe to Safe program. Um, this is a trial to provide incentives to young regional drivers in Victoria to replace their old vehicles, um, which are 16 years or older, and they're offered a financial incentive to do that. Um, moving on to the safe speed literature. Um, speed limits on regional roads are often high and do not always match the risks associated with travelling on poor quality and often inadequate, often with inadequate infrastructure. Infrastructure treatments should be implemented to allow safe travel on the, at the desired speed limit and where this isn't feasible, speed limit reductions should be considered. This can be particularly challenging on unsealed roads where the default speed limit applies and there's virtually no infrastructure. But we do have an example in Tasmania where the default um, speed limit on unsealed roads went down from 100 to 80 kilometres per hour. Speed limit compliance needs to be supported by geometric road design and enforcement, but this can be challenging in regional areas. Mobile camera deployment, also shown to be um, beneficial in rural areas. Um, there's evidence most recently from Queensland where there was a high level of activity, random site selection, and the sites were based on crash criteria. The automated um, speed enforcement, particularly point-to-point -point cameras, and that's the ones that measure the average speed over a fixed distance. Um, they have a fair bit of potential um, as a deterrent on regional roads, as they can cover long distances and require fewer resources, um, acknowledging that they are initially expensive to set up. Mobile point-to-point -point, um, cameras also have much potential to increase deterrence, um, but they're relatively new and got limited evidence to put to this, at this point. Um, importantly as well, community consultation and engagement is vital for acceptance of the need to manage speed and improve road safety outcomes in regional areas. Um, we do have examples of successful reductions in speed limits, um, say for example from the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria where they reduced some roads that were um, 100 or 90 kilometres per hour down to 80. Um, and the success there was attributed to um, grassroots consultation and um, showing evidence of the benefits to the community and this resulted in community acceptance. Um, thank you very much. I'd like to um, hand over to Dr Tanatan. Thank you Lisa and Chris for the uh, walkthrough of the Literature Review. Um, which formed the first of four parts of the report. I'd now like to walk you through the second of four parts of the report, which, is, which contains the fact sheets. So the, we're very, very conscious that practitioners uh, can be very time pressed, especially in regional remote areas, uh, especially some road safety um, officers may actually have multiple roles within the council, so they haven't got, uh, they can't dedicate um, their, their five days of work to road safety. So what we've done is extracted key elements from the literature review and placed them into a series of fact sheets, which I'll walk you through examples of them uh, over the next few pages. So as I mentioned, the, base, the fact sheets are based on the literature review. Um, we've grouped them under four of the safe system pillars, the safe roads, safe speeds, safe people, and safe vehicles. So on the right side of your screen, you'll see a table uh, this has been extracted from the first page of the fact sheets and what it is there for, it's li it lists the four pillars, as you can see um, on the top of the table, safe roads, safe speeds, people and safe vehicles. And on the left hand side in the column there, you'll see that uh, we've listed the, uh, road, uh, the road and transport safety issues. So if, for example, you're looking for um, countermeasures for lane departure, that is uh, the sixth row down from the top, um, you'll see that there are a number of safe road um, countermeasures that can be implemented for lane departures. Similarly, if you look on the safe people um, column, you'll see that advanced driver assist systems can be of assistance here as well. 
and unsafe vehicles, there are also two um, potential common measures there. So this table is developed to help uh, practice guide themselves, um, sorry, help practitioners identify the um, potential solutions and under what safety system pillars they uh, can be found under. Now, on this slide here, we've got an example of a, um, a fact sheet on the on audio tactile line markings and this comes under the safe roads pillar as you can see on the top right side of the fact sheet what we've done with this fact sheet is as i mentioned earlier we presented the key information that most practitioners would be looking for so going from the top uh, down to the bottom and starting with the left hand side screen we've included a photo of the uh, of the countermeasure directly below that we've, we've provided a summary description of what the countermeasure is Indeed, costs where we have this information. Um, also, we've also indicated what type, of, what safe system category this particular kind of measure uh, falls under, whether supporting or primary safe system category. Um, we've also made notes of a number of implementation considerations as well um, that uh, that you may want to um, take into account. Uh, on the right hand side of the fact sheet, we've listed any notes on its applications. The effectiveness, again, where this information is known, um, the target group, uh, target road user group, um, and target crash type, and also any interlinks uh, within other safety pillars that is that are not worthy of. Um, so this is one example of the many fact sheets that are within the project report. I'll go through and present a couple more fact sheets here. So the one left hand side of the screen is from the Safe Roads Pillar, and it's with regards to wide center lines. And on the right hand side uh, is a fact sheet on, from the Safe Vehicles Pillar, um, and this particular one is on the Safe Vehicles Fleet Purchasing Policies. Now you'll notice that the um, that the um, subsections on these fact sheets do vary a fair bit. And this surprised me because we don't always have um, information on items such as indicative cost and also effectiveness. Well, actually, we do have information on effectiveness, I'll take that back, um, but it's mainly the indicative cost um, that we may not have information all the time. And likewise, some of them aren't really classified under a safe system category. So they do vary somewhat, but we place as much information on the fact sheets as possible that is relevant to practitioners. I'll walk through a couple of other topics that are covered on the fact sheets. These by, by no means all uh, topics. These are just examples of them. So under safe roads, we've got safe uh, rail safety barriers, white center lines, sealed shoulders, audio tactile light markings, and compact roundabouts, or roundabouts in general. Under safe people, uh, we've got a number of fact sheets that cover drink driving, a number of fact sheets that also cover illicit drug, drug use and driving, and also fatigue. Under the safe vehicle um, set of fact sheets, uh, we have the promotion of safer vehicle choices through NCAP crash testing um, results, uh, safe vehicle fleet purchasing policies, advanced driver syst systems, and also a fact sheet, rather long fact sheet, that is on heavy vehicles. Under safe speed, we have fact sheets on lower speed limits and automated enforcements. So that rounds up uh, the section two of the report which are fact sheets and i'd now like to move on to section three of the report which is to do with prioritization frameworks now there are quite a number of um of kind of measures that can be implemented as uh, you probably noticed from uh, the presentation by lisa and chris and also the one i've just presented on the fact sheets so which that can result in um in practices being uh, quite confused as to which one should they apply first, second, third, or thirteen prioritization order. So a prioritization framework has been developed and included in the project report. And I'll walk you through briefly what this covers. Um, so this particular table here is in the first um, page uh, um, in the evaluation framework. And it guides you through how to approach um, how to approach a prioritization of the countermeasures. So firstly, it's to understand what the state and understand what the problem is. Once you've identified what the problem is, then it makes it a lot easier to select the, uh, the potential interventions, uh, such as those presented in the fact sheets. The third step 
um, in the prioritizing of countermeasures is to perform a cost estimation. Um, and once you have this information, you then can perform a benefits calculation and then, based on this, prioritize the interventions that you have selected. And lastly, is the implementation of the intervention itself. I do encourage you to have a look at the report because it does contain a lot more information on prioritization. And what I've got here on screen is only a very quick snapshot as to what is contained within uh, this section of the report. The fourth and last section of the report that I'd like to walk you through is the evaluation framework. And uh, this we felt was a very important part of the report, mainly because we've identified that a lot of um, really great countermeasures that have been implemented over the years uh, don't have enough information for us to know how effective they are. And because of this, we could not include them in the literature review and hence the, uh, the fact sheets. So understanding how effective an, uh, an intervention is isn't um, just limited to those who have implemented information, uh, the implemented the countermeasure in terms of understanding how well it's working, but it also has an effect on the wider community within Australian New Zealand as well. Uh, by sharing the information as to uh, whether a particular countermeasure is effective or it's not, and if it is effective, how effective it is and under what conditions. So I do encourage uh, you to uh, evaluate your uh, countermeasures. Um, so as I mentioned earlier just then, that uh, the evaluation of intervention is quite important because we need to understand how effective it has been. Uh, it does inform both individuals as well as organisations, uh, as well as other organisations. Um, and also does help with other practitioners making informed decisions uh, with kind of measure that they may select. Um, and also does help the Australian government, whether it's uh, federal level, also at state level, to understand what kind of measures are effective so that they can choose to fund certain ones uh, and not others. So a couple of tips on intervention evaluation. Firstly, we do encourage that you incorporate uh, the evaluation in the early phases of the design. And this allows you to allocate resources to the evaluation. Um, and second point here is basically make sure that it is appropriate resource. Now we know that a lot of councils are very uh, restricted uh, with the resources, but keep in mind that there also are various organizations and universities that will and can help out with the evaluation as well. Um, the reason why we so encourage people to uh, think about evaluation at the early stage is to make sure that it's designed correctly so that it is systematic and objective. And lastly, it is also designed with transparency in mind. Now, the next slide I'm gonna walk you through is a table that is in the report and it provides a brief summary of uh, the various stages of an evaluation and also the levels as well. And I'll walk you through this uh, very briefly here. So on the top of the table, the very first row, you'll see that we've got four stages listed there. Stage one, which concept, stage two, planning, stage three, data collection, and stage four is the data analysis reporting. So these are the key four stages uh, that we recommend. Um, performing for your evaluation. And on the left-hand side in the first column, you'll see here we've got level one, level two, and level three. These basically indicates the, uh, the depth of the evaluation that's been performed. Level one being the what we've classified as minimum, what encourages us at the minimum um, level. Level two gets a bit more in depth and ask a few more questions. And level three is, is, has the highest rigor of, of evaluation. So this table, again, is contained on the first page um, of the intervention evaluation section report. Within that report, you'll also find an example of an evaluation, of an evaluation as well. So again, I encourage you to have a look at the report itself uh, for more details. Now, that basically concludes um, our presentation on the, on the uh, report. Um, and I'd like to hand this uh, presentation back to, or rather, I'd like to welcome back Dr. Lisa Wonsitz and Dr. Chris Stokes and open the floor to questions from the audience. Thank you, Tana. So I'll be reading out the questions and then I'm going to assign them to uh, one of the presenters to answer. 
Um, I am going to be gentle on the others to start off with and assign some to myself and we'll start off with some easy ones. Um, so the first question is talking about vehicle activated systems as I presented them for intersections and it's just asking if we can please explain more about them. Um, so when I talk about vehicle activated systems, I'm uh, particularly thinking of ASIN type uh, in South Australia, it's called the Rural Junction or Rural Intersection uh, Active Warning System. It's also called that over in New Zealand and in Victoria, it's called the Side Road Activated Speeds. Um, these types of systems were first developed in Sweden in the early 2000s. Um, New Zealand trialled them in the uh, around 2010 plus, I think it was. Uh, and then we've had a couple of trials as well. There's been a few in South Australia. Um, essentially, the systems are based uh, more on technology. Uh, so they're, they're a type of ITS system. Uh, and that their main purpose is really to reduce the cost of intersection safety treatments. So we're relying less on expensive infrastructure. The way they work is to detect a vehicle, generally a vehicle coming from the side road. So one that's meant to stop or give way. Um, and then once that is detected, reducing the speed limit on the major road, so for the traffic that will generally drive through the intersection at speed, um, by um, reducing the or reducing their speed by reducing the speed limit along the major road. So they're, they're really only to reduce the speed limit when there's a potential of a crash with a, another vehicle. Um, and this is to reduce the both the likelihood that a crash would happen and also, and more importantly, the severity of that crash if it does occur. Um, the next question I'll also assign to myself, and this is just asking about perceptual countermeasures and what they are. Um, so perceptual countermeasures are ones that will uh, change the perception of the road environment for the road user as they come uh, along that road. If we're generally talking, um, say, in terms of vehicle drivers or motorcyclists, um, some of them are aimed towards, uh, say, narrowing the road, so giving a perception that the lane is narrowed so that uh, we know that when we have a narrower lane that people tend to slow down. So it gives that perception to try and slow them down. Um, others are also trying to um, achieve a specific benefit, say in terms of motorcyclists, what was trialled on curves uh, was applying perceptive countermeasures that were line markings um, that ran uh, perpendicular across the lane and they were to try and nudge motorcyclists from uh, exposing themselves by cutting a corner too sharply, uh, especially having their head and body over the centre line of the road. So um, I think the next one we'll go to. Uh, so talking about slide 22, and Lisa, this one is for you, please. Um, so the question is, have you explored carrot approaches to rewarding um, improvement of drink driving uh, behaviour rather than just stick approaches such as uh, demerit points? Okay, thanks, Chris. Um, I think with uh, drink driving behaviour, um, I guess looking at the context as well, often um, the drink driving offenders do have very high BAC levels. So we are talking about um, high level drink driving. And I think the most um, effective programs here um, are certainly those that look at actually changing the behaviour. Um, and in particular, um, when you're looking at high levels of drink driving, there's often um, dependence issues as well. So I think that's what really needs to be addressed. So it's it's hard to do um, perhaps something that might be uh, rewarding improvement, but I think the, the really essential part is to um, look at um, getting treatment and also um, lots of uh, behaviour change programs actually involve developing strategies as well so that you can separate drinking and driving as well. So I think those, those aspects are quite um, important um, and maybe the most important uh, 
rather than just relying on the, the stick approach as mentioned there. Okay, thank you, Lisa. Um, another one towards you, please. And the question is, is the average vehicle age older in remote uh, and rural areas? Yeah, so we, we do know that vehicle age is older um, generally in regional areas um, by a couple of years. Um, so that's something that is known. Um, if, if the question is getting at specifically in remote areas, I'm not quite sure what the data is for there, but I would expect it would be similar to regional areas where they, I would expect they would be older than say um, the average vehicle fleet. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, the next question uh, is talking about uh, whether we should actually be trialling more novel approaches and the, the balance between that and ones that have already been proven. Um, so it says, I know that you base the report on proven countermeasures. We know that road safety hasn't been improving much over the last 10 years and leading countries have improved by doing something, some things differently, sorry. So does focusing on existing proven countermeasures stifle innovation and artificially and unnecessarily constrain road safety improvements in the future? If we keep on doing what we've done in the past, can we expect different results? Um, and I think I'd like to open that up really to everyone because that's something we probably all have a, a bit of an understanding and some um, something to comment around. Um, I'll start if it's okay. And I'd just like to say that I do agree with the sentiment of this question. Um, and it is one that I think about quite a bit as well. Um, of course, we need to have some sort of evidence as to the benefits of a particular countermeasure, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to have gone out and trolled it on the road. It could also be scientifically based evidence. So by looking at um, from uh, a more uh, a theoretical approach um, than just going out and um, trialling it on the roads. But it is uh, pertinent to have that evidence there before we go putting stuff out there and also to really think about any side effects of it. Um, but at the same time, yes, we really do need more innovative and different countermeasures, particularly if we're going to reach zero. Um, Tana, do you have anything you would like to comment on this question? No, thanks, Chris. I, uh, I do agree with the sentiment uh, for the person who asked that question uh, that we do sometimes need to be bold and take um, take risks and innovate. Um, but I'm also very, very um, aware, aware that we are a very large country as well, and more than 50% of our fatal crash occur in regional rural roads, which makes it very, very difficult to uh, to, to treat. Um, and certainly, there are some innovations that we that are being trialled at the moment, um, and have been in the past. Not all of them will make it to a level where it's going to be widely accepted and implemented. Um, so I guess that that's the counterside to that as well. That we we have to acknowledge that we have a very large country with a low population base, and therefore, from a financial and economic sense, uh, we are a bit more constrained um, than other countries, such as those in the in Europe, um, where they've got a much larger population base, and therefore um, can dedicate a large portion of their funding to to roads and road safety. Thank you, Tanner and Lisa. That also density population as well, so it doesn't make it easier. But it doesn't make it easy, but it does make it a bit easier than the challenge that we do face in Australia. But I always acknowledge that the uh, that, yeah innovation would help as well. Cool. Thank you, Tanner. Uh, Lisa, do you have anything that you want to say for this? Um, yeah, I'll just quickly add. Um, well, that I do, I do love this question, and I think it's a really good good point. And I think. Um, Given that um, the state of um, road safety in regional areas and rural areas hasn't changed for a long time, that you know maybe there is a need for some innovation as well. And I think it's a good opportunity for people to to actually, where possible, to to trial activities as well, where there's a good uh, evidence 
base for the reason for trialling it, but um, you know that's that's how we learn and we progress as well. Um, so I think I, I spoke about the example of the uh, unsafe versus safe vehicle incentive program. Um, you know that was based on finding um, a need that uh, young people in rural areas um, had a much higher crash rate in regional Victoria. Um, so that's looking at a, a potential solution. Um, but it, you know it's trying something different, and that and that's how we learn as well. Great. Thank you, Lisa. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, Tana. Just very one quick note on that as well, uh, because Australia's population is predominantly clustered along major cities, especially on the east coast. There's also a bit of uh, inequitability that's going on there as well. Um, and I'm not saying that's wrong or right. I'm just saying that is what tends to happen. So we are going to challenge some of that funding that is derived from the taxpayer base of East Coast and the major cities, or East Coast cities, um, to regional road, regional areas as well. That could potentially help um, with resolving some of the uh, problems that we're seeing in regional areas. So a bit more equi equity, equity is what I'm saying, uh, may be needed. I'm going to work today. <laughs> Thank you, Tana. Um, I, I think we've got time for about two more questions. Tana, I'm going to throw one in your direction, although this is one that is also relevant to the uh, literature review, I think, if you can discuss it around the fact sheets itself as well. Um, so the question is, runoff road crashes in regional areas are overrepresented. Aspects regarding reduction in severity and frequency is needed. Does this report include um, things like targeted safety barriers, road geometry, um, such as radii, combination curves, shoulder widths and recoverable areas and the like. Thanks, Chris. Uh, this report does cover some of that. Um, not all, all items that have just been uh, read out, but certainly some of that. Uh, white centre lines, shoulder ceiling, uh, barriers uh, are certainly covered. So I think I think that pretty much answered the question, Chris, or have I missed something else? It's quite a long question. So if there's something I've missed, please do let me know. No, I think you've answered that one. Thank you very much. Um, and I'll just hand one more shorter one over to Lisa, please, before we finish with the questions. And so this one is around mobile automated point-to-point -point cameras. And it's just, could you please explain a little more about these? Okay, so um, I guess the currently the point-to-point -point cameras that people might be used to experiencing, um, they're usually with the cameras in uh, two fixed locations on a road, um, can often be a large number of kilometres in between, um, but these are fixed, whereas the mobile ones um, are solutions that you could have um, either uh, human operated at each end, or there's also um, trailers that um, use the, again, that automatic number plate recognition technology um, that could be, so these trailer solutions could be set up at different points. Um, again, two points on a road um, where you can measure the, the average speed. So the advantage of the mobile solution is that with fixed locations, I guess everybody knows where they are, um, and may adjust their behaviour accordingly. Um, with the mobile solutions, um, I guess you could put them, um, move them around into different locations, which is particularly important in, in regional areas where there's um, lots of uh, different types of roads that you might want to put them on because uh, the fixed ones tend to be on those major rural highways. Um, so this way it's a, it's a movable solution. Um, it can increase um, general deterrence um, and also I guess um, improves that you know I can be caught anywhere at any time um, kind of philosophy as well so um, yeah it does have um, great potential in in regional areas when there's such such a big network to cover um, here in Australia. Okay, thank you very much, Lisa. Um, we've had a raft of good questions come in, but unfortunately we don't have the time to go through them all. Um, so we'll have to finish up with those uh, for today. I will say that all the questions that have been asked are gonna be compiled and we will be going through them afterwards. I'm now going to hand back over to Ekaterina who will uh, finish up the webinar. Thank you.
Thanks so much, Christopher. Thanks, Tana and Lisa. I only have a couple of slides to finish up. As you can see on the screen, we have a number of webinars coming up um, in September, October and November. So if you're interested in any of them in particular, just head off to our website uh, for more information and to register. Um, as we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. Um, it really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Once again, uh, today's webinar has been recorded and we will send you the link uh, to the recording when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day.